This morning we are back in the book of Ephesians. If you recall, last Sunday Jim finished up the book of James, and we're we're nearing the end of Ephesians, as some would say, as we're rounding third and heading for home. Um, but I don't think either, neither James nor, or Jim, James, what's this, Jim or myself, I guess it is James, right? Uh, we don't need to apologize for spending so much time in these, uh, in these books. It's interesting, as I thought about that, uh, some years ago, Carl gave me a set, a book, it's about the books, about this big on the shelf, and there are sermons that um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached at Westminster Chapel in London from 1954 to 1962, a total of 226 sermons from the book of Ephesians, 226. Neither Jim nor I are that thorough, but it does show that the Word of God is a literal gold mine that cannot be exhausted, even though we might be exhausted, that is. What is interesting, as I think about the book of James and the book of Ephesians, they deal with the practical Christian life. I was telling Jim this morning that as we look at James and Ephesians, these are letters that, that James and Paul wrote to, to a group of people. All of us have received letters. You know, we'll read a letter from someone we know well, and we, wow, this is really neat to hear about what's going on. And then we, we may actually keep the letter, but we don't get it out every week or two and reread that. And I wonder what he meant by this sentence. What was, what does this word mean? And how does it relate to that? We don't do that. But that's what these letters are, because they are not just from James and from Paul, but they are from our Heavenly Father. So they're very important that we spend time, that we dig, and we learn what God has for us. Both of those books were written to people who were living in times of uncertainty, and certainly we are living in such times as well. Jesus warned us that difficult times will come. And we live in an age where everything is being challenged. Even David in our Sunday school class, as we looked at Psalm 90 specifically, there's no way modern scholars, scholars tell us, some of them, that Moses had the ability to write. I mean, they wrote on stone and clay tablets, and he could have not have written in all those details. So again, there's this question, constantly this question about, did God say, how could he have said it? But Jesus warned us that difficult times will come. So it's incredibly important that we know what we believe, but why we believe it. So we could say that Ephesians is a letter detailing that Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. And the second part of that is that Christ has united people together from all nations to himself into one body called the church. I think the Ephesians that Paul was writing to were not that much different than we are. And the times that they lived in were not much different than ours either. We have the first slide. There we go. 
So what I want to do is begin by reading Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. We're only going to be spending this morning on that first line. Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast or His mighty strength or power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Standing strong under pressure. How does that look in real life? Paul says, when he writes this letter, he's about to say goodbye to the Ephesians and to this world. He wrote this letter when he was imprisoned in Rome. And as we'll get to later in this section, he talks about the armor of God, and it appears that he, as he looked at the Roman soldiers who he was chained to in his own house, they would come in with their, with their armor. So that was a picture that he saw every day. And so he used that analogy as he wrote. But Paul has learned, will soon learn what his fate is under the despotic rule of Emperor Nero of Rome. Tradition tells us he eventually would be beheaded. He wrote to Timothy about his soon departure. And had he seemed in that book to Timothy that, that he knew that his time was getting close, that he would be leaving this world soon. And not only was he facing his own end, but he was giving a warning to the church at Ephesus about what he saw coming for them. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. What was what was going on, Paul was on his way to Rome. He was on a ship. The ship docked in Mycenae, and Paul had called. He said, one of the elders of the church of Ephesus, come to the coast, come to the dock. I want to meet you one last time. So as he met with them on the dock there in, in, uh, in that port city on his way to Rome, this is what he said. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Not only was there persecution without, from outside forces, the government and other people, but Paul warned there's going to be trouble that's going to be brewing within you. It's going to come even from within your own number. And Jesus had warned the people long before that of such times in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5 or 7 verse 15, he warned, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. So what happened to this body of believers in the city of Ephesus? It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 2, 
Jesus is speaking. And we'll read that in a, in a minute. Before we turn there, I've got a question. All of us buy things, don't we? We purchase new things. We like new things. When you purchase a new thing and you get the, the manual, how to, how to operate it, what is the very first thing that you see? It's that, isn't it? It's warning. I meant to bring a little plastic bag. We got a new computer monitor installed yesterday. And when I opened the box, the top, there was this clear plastic bag, and there was about 15 different emblems on there. All of them had a circle with a line through it. Don't do this. Don't do that. All these warnings on a computer monitor. I mean, what can you do with a computer monitor, right? But that is the first thing that we run into, all of these warnings. What's interesting is whether you buy a drill or a blender, a wash machine or a tractor, you get all these warnings. Now, how many of you, the first thing you do is you get it out of the box and you sit down and you read all the warnings? I'm going to see your hands. Good job, Roger. I saw another hand over here kind of. Good job. Way to go. I don't know how many times I've been called by one of my sons. I won't name any of them. I only have four. Dad, what do I do here? I said, well, did you read the directions? Oh, no, I guess not. Why are we that way? Anyway, so the warnings are there for a reason, right, Rob? <laughs> he reads them now, right? But we have a decision to make. After reading all of those warnings, well, wait a minute. This thing's too dangerous. <laughs> I'm not going to keep this. I'm going to take it back. I, I'm, I'm not going to risk it. We don't do that. We take the warnings, or at least we think we know how to use it, and so we move on. We see the inherent dangers, and we take the necessary precautions to prevent injury. Even God, in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden, had a warning to Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we're very familiar with this. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. How many of the warnings that we read, if you use this improperly, it could cause death? God didn't say anything about, well, you could lose a finger. It might taste bad. You might burn your mouth. He said, no, you will die. That's a clear, strong warning that God gave to Adam. Now, in our time, the way we would deal with that, the first thing I would do would be either to chop the tree down... <laughs> Or to build a fence around it and put a big sign, don't touch. Adam didn't do that. Maybe he didn't have the opportunity. Life is and has always been full of choices. God placed that tree in the garden and warned Adam to steer clear. Because if he didn't, it was going to be trouble. If Adam had simply believed what God had said and wanted to live in that loving relationship that he was enjoying, he would have done everything 
to stay away from it. What was he doing in the middle of the garden anyway? Right? Should have asked me, I guess. God did not want AI beings in this world. He wanted people who would choose to obey him and love him. But that presents a risk. Jesus and later Paul gave warnings about potential risks to be aware of and take the necessary precautions. It's interesting, about 30 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, 30 years later, John receives his revelation from Christ in Revelation chapter 2 is where he speaks to, Jesus does, to the church in Ephesus. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Lord Jesus gave that church a strong warning. So what happened? Their doctrine appeared to be correct. They cannot tolerate evil people or their practices. They don't don't appear to be listening to false prophets that Paul had warned them of because they had tested them and found them to be liars. They had endured persecution for uh, for the sake of Christ's name. What more could you ask? What else would there be? They had abandoned the love they had at first. It seems that as we read Paul's letter and the emphasis that he puts on loving others and being part of a body of of like-minded believers, that that's what they had abandoned. But why? I think context here is very important. What was going on that had caused them to lose that love that they had at first? It doesn't appear to be love for God. I mean, they were doing all these things. This could have been that. But it seems that that Paul is speak, that Jesus is speaking about the love they had for one another. Why would that be? When we consider the culture of the city, with its worship of the goddess Artemis, whose temple was one of the main attractions of that city, of that part of the world, the church began to grow rapidly. And it became a threat to the significance of that city. In Acts chapter 19, it tells us, we read of the riot that ensued because Demetrius, who made shrines to this goddess, and other 
artists would make these and they would sell them. And so the gospel, as it spread, as people were coming to Christ, their business was being affected. And so persecution started. It's been said that while persecution in some ways, in many ways, fuels the growth of the church, it can also cause us and possibly cause them to what we would call circling the wagons. No one wants to invite persecution. And the natural human reaction is to protect ourselves. When we do, we can become suspicious of outsiders for sure, but also of insiders if we're not careful. There's another thing that we don't generally consider in what happened within the church during the different waves of persecution that swept through the empire. The emperor had decided, had said that every person needs to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Just a tiny pinch. That's it. Simple. What happened, what history tells us, is there were some Christians who, when they looked at what was at stake, the loss of property, the loss of livelihood, death even, what is it? It's just taking a little pinch of incense and offering to the... They knew he wasn't a god. He's not God for sure, and he's not even a God. So what difference does it make? And as they rolled that around in their mind during this time of great stress, stress, they decided it's worth it. It's easy for us to sit here and to stand here and say, I would never do that. But I bet you that every one of us would have a hard time saying no. What about our children? What about these little ones that we brought up this morning? What will happen to them if their parents are gone? All those kind of questions. So there were some who did. And there were some who didn't. And they lost much. And some of them had family members and friends who were killed as a result. So after that wave of persecution passed, and as they gathered again as a body, you had some sitting in the congregation who offered a pinch of incense and survived relatively unscathed, and others who lost family members because they didn't. Can you see the tension? Can you see what would happen? And you can see why they would lose the love they had at first. Jesus, the warning he gave in Matthew 24, when that he said in the last days, and surely we are in f- closer to the last days than they were, Jesus warned that the love of most will grow cold and that many will fall away and betray one another and actually hate one another. Jesus wasn't just using hyperbole, just making an exaggerated statement. He meant what he said. In fact, Paul had warned them that when he was gone, savage wolves would attack the flock, and even some from their own number. One writer said, and I quote, "...the Ephesians' diligence in striving for doctrinal purity 
took a heavy toll on their expression of love for their fellow believers. He went on to say, it's hard for a watchdog to smile. Think of that. So it would seem that love triumphs doctrine, right? It's just love. Isn't that what we're hearing in our day? It doesn't matter what you believe because God loves everyone. We just need to love everyone. Come as you are. There's no strings attached. Is that what this means? But Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 23, in criticizing the Pharisees, He says, you tithe the smallest things in your gardens, but ignore the most important things of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Remember the greatest commandment When Jesus was asked, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he added, And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot say we love God if we do not love our neighbors, our brothers. Ephesians 6.10. So this is our text this morning. We have a couple minutes left. Finally, as Paul ends this letter, at the end of things, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. First, we have to understand that we do not have the strength to run or to walk or even to crawl in the Christian life and be successful on our own. The enemy at our heels is far greater. He's a lot smarter. He has a lot more experience. He is more powerful. And he is vicious beyond imagination. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He is not playing games. Aaron has one of those watchdogs that doesn't smile, right? If I remember correctly, he told me once that there's one word that he can say to that dog, and that dog would attack to kill. Is that true? Think of that. Aaron knows that word. I want to be a friend of Aaron. (laughs) Knowing the enemy is critical. And knowing who we are, equally so. And we must remember that Paul is not writing to this letter to individual Christians. It wasn't written to Mike or to James or to Rob or to Bethany or to put your name there. He wrote it to the church that met together in Ephesus. This is for everyone collectively. 
Benjamin Franklin said at the time of the writing, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, he said this, we must all hang together or most assuredly we shall all hang separately. If we stick together, there's a chance we'll make it through. If we don't stick together, we're in trouble. And I think that's what Paul is trying to convey. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now we just get one of those medical alert necklaces, right? (laughs) So if we fall down, we can call somebody. One stone is a stone. You can do a lot with a single stone. David did, right? He killed a giant. But when you take that stone and when you put it together with other stones, a wall is formed that is impenetrable. It's easy to climb over one stone, but where you have 120 people, 120 stones stacked on top of each other and around each other, it's much more difficult. We need a strong defense against outside forces. Paul is telling us that the strength at our disposal is not just sufficient, but it is overwhelming against the enemy. Because it's not our strength, it is Christ's strength. Being strong in the Lord does not mean that he wants to build us up so that we can just go off and do our own thing and be successful. We are always, every moment of every day, in need of His strength. Jesus said, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And he says, I am the vine. I'm the one who has the strength. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do, what's the word? Nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. He does not train us and then send us off on our merry way. No, he says, I will go with you. I am always at your side through my spirit and my word. Adam in the garden, when Satan, the serpent came and was tempting them, he could have called out, he said, Lord, where are you? We need your help. But he didn't. He thought he could handle the situation on his own. And we've been suffering ever since. Why is it that we are so slow to ask for help? We think we can navigate this life essentially on our own. 
But in our battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are powerless on our own. We need to remember that and believe that. Because if we don't, we're ripe for destruction. So why is this necessary? Why is it important that we be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might? Verse 11 tells us, and we'll come to that later, so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. He's a schemer. He's a liar. He hates you. What's at stake? If we fall, God forgives sin, right? He does. But look at the damage. It can be catastrophic. And when I or you as individuals fall, the body of Christ takes a blow. Our witness as the church is damaged. Isaiah said in chapter 52, verse 5, that the defeat of God's people brings shame upon God's name. It's a warning. But there's hope. There's strength in Him. So as we walk, as we sometimes crawl, or slide, or march through 2024, let's be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll stand as we pray, and then Marvin, if you could lead us in the doxology. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, we are so grateful for having the Scriptures in our own tongue that we can read, we can understand, and we can learn and obey. So, Father, as we face uncertain times, we don't know what this year or next year or next week or tomorrow will bring, but we know that we stand under pressure as we stand in your strength, and as we do it together, we can help one another to be successful in our walk. So, Father, go with us. Bless us this week. May we honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.